This is Dominic Preziosi, editor of Commonweal. While the geopolitical concerns and humanitarian costs of Russia's invasion of Ukraine dominate the news, the war has also surfaced significant historical and contemporary religious elements, including the at times complicated relationships among Orthodox Christians and the role of papal diplomacy in times of international crisis. On this episode, we speak with two guests. First, George Demacopoulos, professor of Orthodox Christian Studies at Fordham University, explains how the war in Ukraine is affecting Orthodox Christianity throughout the world and what the remarks of Moscow Patriarch Kirill might suggest about Russian Orthodoxy's connection with Vladimir Putin. Then we talk with New Yorker staff writer and longtime Commonweal contributor Paul Eli about Pope Francis's response to the conflict, which some have called muted and insufficient, and what that says about Vatican diplomacy today. Those conversations are coming right up on the Commonweal Podcast. George Demacopoulos, thanks for being with us on the Commonweal Podcast. I'm happy to be here. Thanks for inviting me. So your piece in Commonweal in the opening days of the war took note of the varying responses to Russia's invasion of Ukraine within Orthodox Christianity. Leaving aside Patriarch Kirill of Moscow and the head of the Russian Orthodox Church outside of Russia, both of whom we'll get to in a minute, can you give a general sense of the reactions and maybe some updates since your piece appeared? Yes. The Orthodox Christian world is administratively organized according to 15 autocephalous or self-governing churches. Of those 15, approximately a third of those jurisdictions encompass more than a modern-day nation-state. So, for example, the ecumenical patriarchate, which is considered first among equals, has a kind of global reach, whereas many of the other churches, the more recent churches, have only uh, territory that largely aligns with modern borders. So the Church of Albania, the Church of Greece, the Church of Cyprus, the Church of Georgia, etc. The Church of Russia actually has a territory that does extend beyond the Russian Federation. It includes Ukraine, it includes Belarus, and, and so that is part of the issue. So at this point, every independent church in the Orthodox world has issued a kind of formal statement, sometimes many more than one. Seven of the 15 jurisdictions have struck a pretty neutral position, meaning they are not criticizing Russia or Vladimir Putin or the Russian Orthodox Church directly. They are simply speaking of war is tragic, war is bad. There are Orthodox Christians in both places. So as I say, seven of the 15 now have taken a kind of neutral stance. The Patriarchate of Moscow, of course, has endorsed the war. So that then leaves seven other churches that have in varying degrees been explicitly critical of the Russian government, Vladimir Putin, and in a few cases, asking Patriarch Kirill directly to involve himself to put an end to the war and so forth. So, George, what might account for the differences in tone and content in these responses? Why are some tepid and why are some more pointed? I don't think, frankly, in any single case, it's only one thing. There are historic ties, of course, to the Moscow Patriarchate among some of these jurisdictions. 
more recently, there are political ties between governments and the national churches. And there is also, in, in some specific cases, such as the Church of Serbia, the Church of Antioch, to a lesser degree, the Church of Bulgaria, there has been over the last 10 or 15 years considerable amounts of money that have flown from the Moscow Patriarchate into these churches for the building of churches or or iconography or simply support for the churches on the ground. And and so you have these varying levels of contact, which I think is simply tying the hands of some of the churches to speak more freely. Back at the outset of the war, you characterized the response from Patriarch Kirill as ridiculous. I'm going to ask you to explain why you characterized it that way, but I imagine, too, that what we've heard since that time in his homilies and other statements, he seems only to have further adopted the messaging of Putin. So maybe you could speak to the Moscow patriarch. Yes. So at the very beginning of the war, the reason I referred to it as ridiculous was in part because he refused to call it a war, an invasion or anything like that. He was just parroting Moscow Kremlin propaganda. Right. It wasn't invasion. It was a special operation or to use the language of the sermon he gave the day of the war. It was current events. Since that time, he has spoken regularly, and he continues to double down on things that not only reflect the Kremlin's political rhetoric, but it also reinforces something that has been central to his own campaign for a long time, which is this promotion of traditional values. In Patriarch Kirill's view of the world, there is only one kind of pure Christian space, and that is Russia. It's Russian soil, it's Russian blood, and it's Russian civilizational ideology. Everything outside of that network of the Russian church is contaminated by Western liberalism, pluralism, liberal democracy, all of these kind of modern, what he would perceive to be threats to traditional values. He's not even speaking so much about any kind of creedal theological position. He's adopted a kind of culture war mentality so that everything in the West is corrupt and bad. Everything in Russia is pure and good. And so in a number of his statements since the war began, he continues in an escalating way to defend Russian intervention on the basis that the Russian speakers in Ukraine, who he perceives to be part of this pure Russia, are under assault by these Western demonic values. And therefore, Russian intervention into Ukraine is justified so as to prevent a kind of decadent Western liberalism from infiltrating Russian purity. As I understand it, he seems even to have posed warnings to other churches and religions. And I'm wondering if maybe you could explain some of that. Well, there's a couple ways to answer that kind of question, right? His jurisdiction extends into Ukraine, right? There are 53 bishops, 53 dioceses in Ukraine that are historically under his supervision. 18 of those bishops are refusing to recognize his authority because of his endorsement of the war. It's unclear what direction they're going to go. Are they going to unite with the autocephalous church of Ukraine? Are they going to just wait it out until Kirill has a replacement, stay with Moscow and so forth? 
but he is threatening any of those churches who do not commemorate him. Specifically, what that means is do not pray for him by name in their church services, that he is declaring that any such bishop and jurisdiction that refuses to do so is now formally in schism, which is not the proper definition of schism, but he seems to be making things up as he goes. He is also consistently advancing himself as the lone defender of pure or true orthodoxy against other more historic churches like the Ecumenical Patriarchate or the Church of Jerusalem or the Church of Alexandria, Antioch, what have you. And so he's threatening these churches that if they do anything to challenge his authority, he will simply open up parallel jurisdictions in their territory, which is precisely what he's done in Africa this year. So there are implications, of course, as well for the Russian Orthodox Church outside of Russia, whose leader happens to live in New York City, and he's struck a similarly pro-Russia tone. What's the significance of that, and what does it mean for members of this church living in the United States? Yeah, the Russian Orthodox Church outside of Russia, which is what we have in the United States, and the acronym is ROPOR, the Russian Orthodox Church outside of Russia is in a precarious situation. There is certainly a kind of Russian phobia sweeping the West at the moment. There are certainly in these churches a wide diversity of sentiment and positioning with respect to the Moscow Patriarchate and Russian politics. The Rokor, as it's known in, in the United States, is a very diverse space. That said, its institutional leadership is, at least so far, very supportive and on board with the Moscow Patriarchate. It seems to be less so in Europe. There's a kind of parallel system across Western Europe, and there you're starting to see some chinks in the armor, so to speak. Some bishops in Rokor and some parishes in Rokor in Western Europe denouncing the war and breaking away. That's not happened in the United States. That I've seen from any of their bishops, although a good number of lay people, scholars, and parishioners have been very outspoken in their critique of the war. So obviously, developments are occurring quickly. But nevertheless, I'm wondering if there's something that we should be paying attention to in the weeks and months to come in terms of how the war impacts Christian orthodoxy. Are there short-term or even any long-term effects that you might be able to identify now? Yeah, one of the more interesting things that happened was about a week ago, uh, a group of about 50 Orthodox theologians from around the world got together and issued a declaration against the Ruski Mirror Russian world ideology, at one point even referring to it as heresy. That has now gained signatures of over a thousand theologians across the world, and including a few bishops in the Church of Greece. What's going to be really interesting to see is whether or not the leaders of the institutional churches and a larger number of bishops in the Orthodox world are going to sign on to this kind of declaration, not necessarily this one per se, but if there begins to be momentum in the individual churches to offer some kind of censor of Patriarch Kirill and his ideology and his support for the war. At the moment, that seems unlikely, this Ruski Mir or Russian world ideology of Patriarch Kirill, it really has this notion of civilizational 
uniqueness and kind of civilizational purity against a decadent fallen external world. It has this notion that a Russian is genetically automatically orthodox, that there is a tie between soil, blood, faith, and so forth that is led by the Moscow Patriarchate. It doesn't have necessarily a creedal formulation. It's more in what we think of in the West as a culture war mentality. It's fundamentally opposed to women's liberation. It's fundamentally opposed to, to gay rights. It sees pluralism as a direct threat and so forth. But if this drags on for long enough, you could see the, the scales begin to tip. And to my mind, that's going to be one of the more interesting things to watch. George Demacopoulos, thanks for being with us. My pleasure. Is the Spirit leading you to discover your unique mission in the world? At the Franciscan School of Theology at the University of San Diego, continue to deepen your faith journey and discover your unique role in caring for our world and the Catholic Church with rigorous master's programs led by world-class scholars. FST's courses and lectures dive deep into the heart of Franciscan spirituality, theology, and social thought, integrating the Catholic faith and the Franciscan vision of civic life and church leadership. The Franciscan School of Theology offers three on-campus degrees, the Master of Theological Studies, Master of Divinity, and Master of Arts, and an online degree, the Master of Theology Franciscan Theology degree. Learn to put theology to work in the world at FST. Find true and perfect joy. Visit fst.edu for more information and to start your application today. Paul Eli is a senior fellow at Georgetown University's Berkeley Center for Religion, Peace, and World Affairs and a regular contributor to The New Yorker. He spoke with Commonwealth Assistant Editor Griffin Olenek about Vatican diplomacy and Pope Francis' responses to Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Paul, thanks so much for being here on the Commonwealth Podcast. I'm glad to be here, Griffin. Thanks for having me. So Pope Francis has been repeatedly criticized by Western media for not explicitly blaming the present conflict on Russia or for calling out Vladimir Putin by name. What has Francis done and said thus far to address the war? And why, in your view, has he been so cautious? So when I wrote the piece for The New Yorker, which was posted on Saturday after St. Patrick's Day, Francis had been, as I put it, vividly expressive but lacking in specifics. He had spoken in general terms about how awful war is and about conflict, etc. The next day, he began to get notably more specific. At the Sunday Angelus, he cried out, in the name of God, stop this massacre. He bemoaned the killing of innocents. He then referred to an act of aggression. These things, while not naming Putin or Russia, are more specific, and it's really important to note that. He read out a prayer written by an Italian bishop asking for God's mercy on the fratricidal war being fought. That was language that, the very language that's denounced by much of Eastern Orthodoxy as being the language of moral equivalence. This is a fratricidal war and not an act of aggression by one brother, so to speak, against the other. He made some general references to the peril of atomic war in an encounter with some students from Milan. He has dedicated Ukraine and Russia to the Immaculate Heart of Mary. The Secretary of State, Perlin, led a mass for peace at the altar of the chair, which is a special altar in St. Peter's Basilica in 
most of the ambassadors to the Holy See were present, including those from Ukraine and Russia. Then Pope Francis met with Kirill by video conference, and they spoke. Then after that, he decried the aggression against Ukraine and called it sacrilegious. I'm giving you a lot of detail because this is how, step by step, he has become more specific without naming Russia and Ukraine. And various parties can debate about how significant it is for Francis to name Ukraine and Putin directly, and I'd like to come back to that. But he's moved in the direction that I urged him to do. And of course, not saying it was following on anything that I wrote, but this is how pressure is applied, especially in a free society. People make their views known. Francis moved, and that's a good thing. What's the importance of naming Ukraine and Russia? What's the importance of naming Putin? And, and why, why is it so significant for him to do so? Why the generalities? I didn't, in my piece, call for him to name Putin in Ukraine. I said that, frankly, at this point, that there's a little that any world leader can say and do that seems to be able to stop Putin. I went on to suggest that what he should be prepared to do is make a statement in advance of the prospect of a nuclear or chemical attack. In this case, words in advance, a red line from the Pope that would galvanize a global coalition against these nuclear or chemical weapons might really serve as a deterrent. And in this case, Russia has the nuclear and chemical weapons and Ukraine does not. So the language of moral equivalence uh, wouldn't be relevant to that case. But let's go back to your original question. If there's a theme of everything I've written for The New Yorker about Catholicism, it's that the church's inability to speak in clear terms about uh, things that are happening has hobbled it. That my very long piece about the sexual abuse crisis had to do with the fact that the church had for 25 or 30 years used euphemism and evasion for all sorts of perfectly good reasons that the clerics lectured us were necessary. And it put itself on the wrong side of the truth. Right now, does it matter that Francis names Putin? Maybe not. But can you imagine a war stretching on for five years in which Pope Francis, who would then be 90 years old, has refused to speak of the aggressor? I think the refusal would be at the cost of a certain amount of moral authority. And we've seen it happen. And that, I think that has to be taken into account. You also note that Russia's invasion of Ukraine is a morally clear case, that there is no ambiguity. So I think a lot of Catholics, I think a lot of people are confused as to why the Pope hasn't taken that moral authority. In your piece, you explain that one of the Pope's predecessors, Pope John Paul II, visibly used the moral power of the papacy to oppose authoritarianism. But here, Francis appears more hesitant, more reluctant to use the full moral authority of the papacy. Uh, what do you think this says about the two popes' different approach to global diplomacy and about their respective visions for the Catholic Church and the world? So in my article, I invited readers to agree with me that the situation is one of moral clarity akin to the Gdansk shipyards circa 1980. And that from the point of view of the Catholic just war tradition, Putin's war is unjust and the Ukrainian response is just. In the latter case, it's the cause is just, the preservation of Ukraine as a place of national sovereignty. It's proportionate. Their response is not disproportionate to Russia's. In fact, it's the other way around. And it's a last resort. They sought diplomacy. They didn't strike out until they were attacked. Confusingly, though, Pope Francis meeting with Kirill, positioned 
himself and the Holy See beyond the just war tradition. He said on the one hand that we in our churches no longer speak of holy wars in an indirect denunciation of Kirill's use of the language of holy war to support Putin's invasion. And then on the other, he said, we don't speak of just wars, which seem to deprive the Ukrainian resistance of, of the justness of its cause. Was he not being careful? Was he putting it so even-handedly as a way of appeasing Kirill? Was he speaking out of the fact that since John Paul's time, the church has moved away from the just war tradition and towards a more substantially anti-war position? This is the kind of thing that people scrutinize in several languages, people who follow the Holy See. To me, that even-handedness, I was dismayed by that. I think we can't simply walk away from the just war tradition by saying we in our churches do not speak of it. It's a robust tradition with a thousand-year history that still offers a good deal of clarity, and this instance shows that. So now to your second question. The most significant act of the church taking a role in geopolitics in my lifetime is the um, efforts of John Paul in Poland when Poland was still a satellite state of the Soviet Union, 1979, 1980, 1983, 1987, and then the Soviet Union ended. He was on the cover of Time magazine. Catholics of all stripes ever since then have enjoyed the moral authority that comes with the fact that this was the Pope that brought down communism and brought down specifically communism that came out of Moscow. So it's just natural to think in the situation, there's an historical parallel. We have a despotic regime out of Moscow that's exercising its role in territories that lie somewhere between Russia and Europe. And what's the Pope going to do? So the whole situation of the papacy and the church, let's just say in my lifetime, break with precedent more than sticking with precedent. The calling of the Second Vatican Council was unprecedented. The election of a Pope from Poland was unprecedented. The role that the Pope took in global affairs was unprecedented. The then resignation of the successor, Benedict, was unprecedented. The election of a Jesuit from South America was unprecedented. Even such small things as Pope Francis making a visit to the Russian embassy shortly after the Russian invasion was unprecedented. It doesn't, to me, make sense to, in light of all church history that's full of the breaking of precedents, to suddenly hear the Vatican appealing to precedents and talk about what is never done or what can't be done. Because the story of the church in my lifetime has been the popes doing things that supposedly can't be done over and over again. Well, and speaking of possibility of Pope Francis doing new things, we know that pressure has continued to grow on the Pope to denounce Russia more forcefully, to speak more specifically about the conflict. And we think it will probably only grow as Russia continues attacking civilian targets in Ukraine. So what recourse and what strategies do you think are left to the Pope right now? So the more specifics he uses, the better. There's a wish for Pope Francis to use the considerable creativity that he's demonstrated during his pontificate to figure out a way to apply the moral authority of the papacy and of the Catholic tradition in an instance which doesn't have a clear precedent because an unprecedented pope, is, there's nobody better than to do that. I would say where things are tending now is that he's been invited to visit Ukraine. Now, there would be a parallel with John Paul going to Poland, but it would also be during wartime. It would be a combination of precedented and unprecedented. 
I have to say, it's hard for me to understand just how Pope Francis would go to Ukraine while continuing to refrain from mentoring Russia or Putin. I'm not saying he couldn't do it, but it makes one furrow one's brow, let's say, to imagine that he would go there but not be any more specific. So where I ended my piece was proposing that he could follow the precedent of John Twenty-Third at a moment in the Cuban Missile Crisis when it really looked as if nuclear war might be possible between the Soviet Union and the U.S., John, and the story here, some say he was responding to an initiative from President Kennedy, addressed a letter to the nations warning against the possibility of going over the nuclear brink. The headlines are full of credible reports that the next step for Putin, especially if the war as it is grinds on, would be to either use or threaten to use nuclear or chemical weapons in order to prevail. I think that Pope Francis could speak in advance about that. It would have a triple effect. It would draw on the precedent of John Twenty-Third. It would galvanize a moral coalition, you know, Nobel laureates, uh, statesmen, and so forth, scientists to speak against the peril of, of nuclear chemical weapons in their use. And it would have moral clarity in that Ukraine does not have nuclear weapons. They gave them up in 1994. And for all we know, it doesn't have chemical weapons. So it would enable Francis to move beyond the gray zone of moral equivalence and speak with the clarity that's appropriate to his person and his role. One other point that you do raise in the piece that we didn't really touch on is the similarity between the, the Ruski mirror and the, the idea that Patriarch Kirill has of culture war and some of the more intransigent right-wing Catholicism that you see, especially in the United States. What are some of the similarities between the ideology that's driving the Christianity of somebody like Patriarch Kirill and some of Francis's more vocal conservative detractors here in the U.S.? And, and do those similarities matter? So Kirill, in a homily that he gave in early March, spoke in holy war terms about the invasion of Ukraine. He weirdly alluded to the need to stop the advance of the gay parades, which was a cipher for the advance of uh, Western liberal culture uh, into places where it has not yet gained a, a firm toehold, the, the Russian, former Russian empire. And then he struck some notes that are familiar to people who have watched him, and I'm not one of them, as part of his theory of a Ruski Mir, a greater Russia that is spiritually bound by orthodoxy and that should be united geographically and in terms of government as well. And what I pointed out in the piece is that there are some similarities between that and the impulse that led John Paul to go to Gdansk and to Krakow and to Warsaw during the time of the Iron Curtain. Now, make no mistake, Pope John Paul went there to affirm the rights of nations to their full sovereignty. So in his view, the Polish nationhood was thwarted by communism, and that was a basic injustice. So the analogy is not perfect here, because that would place Pope John Paul on the side of Ukraine, whose national so sovereignty is being violated here. But it shouldn't be forgotten that the language of Pope John Paul's mission, so to speak, had as one of his aspects the restoration of contiguous and continuous Christian basis of Europe. He said it this way, Europe, which despite its present and long-lasting divisions of regimes, 
ideologies, economical and political systems, cannot cease to seek its fundamental unity, must turn to Christianity. Despite the different traditions that exist in the territory of Europe between its eastern part and its western part, there lives in each of them the same Christianity. Christianity must commit itself anew to the formation of the spiritual unity of Europe. So there you, you see Christianity as a basis for spiritual unity. That's then a basis for a kind of geographic unity. And there's some analogy between that outlook and the outlook of Kirill at the present. And you mention how it lines up with a lot of conservative Catholics in this country. And I think that's true, that I think those who are calling for a post-liberal restoration of Christian values, that this history has to be uh, kept in play and its limits as well as its perceived strengths. You can read George Demacopoulos' article, From Complacency to Clear Condemnation, on the Commonweal website. Also be on the lookout for special coverage on Ukraine in our April issue. This is Dominic Preziosi for the Commonweal Podcast. The Commonweal Podcast is produced by Assistant Editor Griffin Olenek and the Commonweal staff in partnership with Sandberg Media. Wally Boudway composed the music, and David Dalt did the editing. For the Commonweal Podcast, this is Dominic Preziosi. <laughs>